Welcome to Four Gifts. I'm your host Jess. In this podcast, we talk about spirituality, however you define it, relationships, playfulness, and fortune—the four ingredients for an abundant, loving, creative, and fun life. So today, our guest is Dr. Greg Siegel. He is director of the program in cognitive affective neuroscience (PCAN) at the University of Pittsburgh. And last month, June 2019, he was also awarded the honorary chair in cognitive science at the University of Amsterdam. And he is devoted to understanding interactions of cognition and emotion, especially their association with mental disorder and recovery, such as depression and anxiety. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Jess. Hi. So Greg is a good friend of mine, and ever since、uh, the lecture last month in Amsterdam. I have been chewing on the very profound and interesting ideas you presented, so that's why I thought it's such a pity that only psychology students who know the jargon can access such important information. So how about doing a podcast in plain language? And Greg was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So yeah, I'm happy to have you here. And just like what you said in the subtitle of your lecture, what if freaking out and shutting down are perfectly normal, and even sometimes even desirable? You know, when I first heard that, I was like, "Wow, this is this sounds really counterintuitive, and quite different from most of the self-help, reg- like emotional regulation books." So, could you briefly tell us、uh, what's the context of, of this whole lecture or this whole idea? I mean, what what researchers and therapists used to think、uh, freaking out and shutting down, like,、um, and why did you come up with this idea? So. Most of us have had the experience of being very upset sometimes, or、um, having to bite our tongue <laughs> and be act even more calm than we are. Yeah. And yet, these experiences are often stigmatized. If I'm very upset, I,、um, I can't say I'm not coming to work because I'm so upset. I could say I have a headache or I have a, I'm sick some way.、Mm. But it is not accepted in society to say emotionally,、um, I'm not doing well. And yet, the reason we don't come to work because we're sick is because it might be contagious, and we could get others、um, sick as well.、Mm. And yet, if we're sad, we know that sad is just as contagious. And yet, somehow, we're stigmatized from saying, "I'm so sad that I don't want to make other people sad, so I would like to have some time alone."、Mm. Why? Would that not be the same?、Um, so we started doing some work and saying, "Well, how usual is this?" Let me back up.、Mm-hmm. Most interventions in mental health are devoted to decreasing emotions. So most medications、yeah. um, seem to help people to、um, have less strong emotions. They shut off brain areas like the amygdala and areas that compute how. Important information is for us. They decrease activity in those. Most therapies are devoted to helping people understand their emotions and maybe、um, regulate them、exactly. more effectively, so that we don't experience them as strongly.、Um, and we started looking at how how usual it is for people to have strong emotions. And it turns out that if you show people some emotional information, they have very strong and very prolonged reactions to it. Um, and then, if you give people a choice of how they want to react to that information, a lot of times, rather than doing the things we talk about in therapy, like reappraising it, they say, "Maybe I just want to shut down. Maybe I just 
don't want to have that now. And, and they do things that are in the brain a lot like um, dissociation. Mm. And this is healthy people every day. So I started saying, what if, what if that's normal? How would we have to change? How would society change? How would, how would our everyday lives change if we just allowed that? Mm. Yeah. So let's, let me back up a little bit because you talked about freaking out and shutting down. I think there are quite different states, right? And freaking out is more like, I, I'm a lay person. So I, as far as I understand, freaking out is more like uh, vigilant and shutting down is more numbing. Um, so maybe we can talk about them differently or, or you would actually see them as not that different. So. I see them these days as all part of a process okay. and it's how you react to having an emotion. Mm. So we did a study back in 2006 where we um, measured people with spider phobia, seeing mm. spider pictures, healthy people who are not spider phobic, their amygdala areas that recognize things as emotional turn on mm -hmm. and then they have a sort of a long low grade reaction. Oh, that's a spider. That's a spider. That's a spider. People with spider phobia have a huge reaction in the amygdala that cuts off and then it's like they bury their head in the sand. And this is all part of the same process and it happens very quickly. Okay. Um, mm. So I think a lot of times our regulation is in proportion to the emotions we're having. And if we are not having a very strong emotion, perhaps we don't need to stomp on it. But if we're afraid that we might run away or hit somebody or something, we might overcompensate and strongly regulate those emotions. So it turns out that then this shutting down might be just a normal reaction to a very strong emotion. Right. Because uh, you, you, earlier you mentioned how this is stigmatized even within the mental health um, professions. Because... Uh, I I always I also had that stigma actually I I I used to think oh dissociation is such a such a bad reaction so to say or it must mean some mean that uh, you had some trauma and that's a like a typical reaction if you're triggered so maybe so we'd better not get into that dissociation state and I actually I just encountered that uh, during work uh, two weeks ago. So I was at work and um, suddenly I got triggered somehow. And but the way I managed it was I shared it with my uh, my leader, and I told him that I'm I was triggered, but I also need to um, perform the the next task. So I told him that I can kind of dissociate myself a little bit, and I. I, I can still function. And he was really worried about me and saying that, you know, it's it's not healthy to, to detach. And so do you need anything else right now? But I actually didn't know what would the so-called best reaction be at that moment. What would you say? So I guess the way I would think of it mm -hmm. is perhaps there's a continuum. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if we're if we've just had an argument with our significant other and we need to go to work, everybody says, well, maybe you can compartmentalize a little right. bit. Maybe you can have that argument later and you don't need to bring it with you all day. Mm -hmm. Is that dissociation? Well, maybe it shares some processes. Um, right. Maybe if I'm not completely immersed in emotion, maybe that's okay. 
Mm. Um, at some point when I become a fly on the wall and I can't even engage with what's in front of me, maybe that's pulling back a little too much right. for certain activities. Maybe it's absolutely ideal for certain other activities if I want to be able to just objectively observe things. Um, mm. We've talked a lot about how detachment and mindfulness might actually share a lot of properties with um, what some people call dissociation. Mm. And maybe they're just continua. So I think managing our emotions and managing our distance from our emotional reactions can be um, really empowering. Yeah. Uh, what we're evolved to do if there is danger is shut off our brain and direct our energy to our legs so we can run mm -hmm. away. That is our uh, our reptile brain's reaction mm -hmm. and over time millions of years we've grown a prefrontal cortex that lets us decide how much we want to indulge that process and we can say maybe i want to indulge it a lot and just run away from danger and have that be utter detachment or maybe utter engagement if um depending on how you think of it and maybe i want to have some cognitive role in deciding yeah yeah i want to allow myself to experience the emotion a bit, but I don't want to be completely overcome by it. Mm. And putting that back in our hands, rather than having society tell us this is how much you should be engaged or detached, could be really useful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hearing that you're saying this is a, it's a matter of degree and it's a matter of how, how, how you decide uh, how much you want to engage. But do you think that already requires some basic... Uh, emotional awareness and and some techniques of regulation. Perhaps yeah. I'm going to say it's something we're doing all the time anyway. Mm. These processes are not always conscious. So in the 1920s, they did these experiments where they showed people a deck of cards and said you're supposed to remember each card. And people were pretty good at it, unless a card came up with a picture of a naked hmm. person. And then you forgot the images before and after the image of the naked person. This is maybe something like a dissociative process <laughs> where um, you just step out of the reality of things for a bit because you're so overcome and you don't encode for a while. If all of this is just happening, then it turns out we can prepare ourselves and say some really negative thing might happen now and I want to stay present with it. And I'd argue that staying even more present and being able to remember things mm. despite all of our emotion systems coming online. And yeah, that's that's having some presence, but it's also having really basic preparation. If you know you're going into a fight, you know that I have to be all in with this and I can't completely just disengage. Um, and that's our prefrontal cortex helping our emotion system along and saying, yeah, this is how I want to engage with this emotional information. I would argue there's always context. There's mm. always some level of um, preparation, and it's just how we want to how we want to play that one that becomes our choice. Right. There's always con always context, and so in the context of the workplace, that as you mentioned earlier, if an employee wants to shut down uh, for whatever reason and a lot of employers would start to worry, like, if I allow this to happen, where's the productivity? And how am I going to know how, lo uh, how long this person needs to shut down? And 
we need a lot of education around this. So this is also what I want to talk about in, in this podcast. Yeah. 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 So I think we, as a society, we need a lot of education around emotional vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So, for example, some emotional things are going to happen in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And right now we have an idea of what an acceptable reaction is. Somebody says something you don't like, can you cry about it and really indulge that emotion? Well, most workplaces, they say you probably shouldn't spend your day crying. Mm -hmm. Can you completely disengage and be a zombie? Well, most workplaces are saying, well, that's also not, you know, where we would like you to be. We would like you to balance on the head of the pin at this utterly apparently regulated place where your face doesn't belie a lot of emotion and yet you're not totally dissociated and when you think about this this is this is probably a very unnatural state Mm. and when we measure people facially suppressing emotional reactions physiologically they're actually over the top um And their performance suffers because of the level of suppression that they're expected to engage in, in the workplace in general. Suppose workplaces said having emotions are perfectly acceptable Mm. and you don't need to completely dissociate. Maybe that's okay. So having a policy like it's okay to cry at the workplace might actually prevent people from dissociating sometimes because they're allowed to have their emotions. Yeah. Or saying, look, if what you need to do is process things later, some emotional thing may happen and we may see you give us the thousand mile stare for a little bit. And maybe that's okay because that's your way of coping. And you've got that way of coping since you were very little. And, you know, maybe that's what you learned because you had some kind of an upbringing where that was the only way to survive. Mm. And so rather than preventing you from engaging in the coping style you're familiar with and okay with and know how to use, we'll let you do that and just say, so maybe this person is going to be a little distant for a little while. They know what they're doing and trust people on this one. Wow, that sounds really like an ideal workplace for me. And I know that your lab is actually having that policy, right? Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we call it the experiment Uh in my lab. And the great experiment is we run an emotion lab and in a hospital. And usually in a hospital, patients are allowed to have emotions, but the doctors (laughs) aren't and the staff is not. Mm -hmm. And so in my lab, we turn it around and say, what if the staff and the doctors are allowed to have emotions and are allowed to have their natural reactions? What would that even be like? So we make it explicitly okay to cry to um, say you're frustrated, to show your frustration. If you need to bang a table, you bang a table, Mm. even as a doctor. And we have a rule that you're not allowed to be mean to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And you're not allowed to put someone else down, but take the time you need for you. Um, And that can be in a public context or in a private context. Um, And it's been very interesting because it actually has these feedback loops. Uh If you're showing an emotion and I have a reaction to that emotion, I also have to be allowed to have that. And we can watch the contagion happen. We can talk (laughs) about that. And we just make that part of the process. So, oh, you know, I was so proud of one of my undergraduates a few weeks ago where I was being really negative about something. And she just said in the middle of a meeting, hey, your negativity is actually affecting all of us. And we're all becoming quite upset about this. She didn't tell me to stop. 
she didn't tell me, you know, we have to not have the meeting, but she just wanted to let me know where we are. And it was now my choice. How do I want to play this? And I said, okay, for the good of the group, I'm actually going to um, suppress some of this emotion. It's not that I'm not having it, but we don't have to all indulge it together. And the group was like, yeah, okay, we'll go for this. We know you're having it, and we thank you for not bringing it to us so apparently. Uh-huh. And we just went on. But that was a conversation rather than, um, ra- rather than an expectation. Wow. Yeah, I like that example. And also, I picked up from what you said just now, the word explicitly. So you made the policy explicitly, made it explicitly okay that you can cry, you can you can slam the door, you can, you can you can be negative, but you 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 gotta be aware of the consequence of that. And I think once that right. is like a like a written or uh, agreed rule for for everyone in this workplace, then yeah, things seem to be very different. Yeah, it it makes it perfectly natural to have reactions and also to have. Your prefrontal control systems saying, "Okay, how do I want to play this reaction? And maybe I want to shut down now, or maybe I wanted to modulate just a little bit, or maybe I want to modulate a lot, and all of that's okay." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it means you can go to somebody and say, "Are you okay with me having a really strong emotion right now? I'm feeling it, and if I, you know, suppress it, it's going to be some effort. We may not be as efficient." But if that's what you need, I'll do that for you. And people have that conversation too. Wow, yeah, I- I'm imagining it needs a lot of awareness from the employer and from, for example, a team leader. Because if only the team members want to do that, while the leader, because there is still some power dynamics, right? And there's some, some, some fear of being fired, for example, or or having those consequences if I experience express my emotions whereas if my boss or my team leader says okay it's it's totally fine if you if you do this or you say that and we'll we'll deal with it together it's it's really it will make a a huge difference and i'm happy that yeah the group i work with currently the the leader also told me that i consider it more professional to to share what you're uh, where you are at, and to to tell me if you're not capable of doing things right now, and instead of just just pretending you're on top of everything, so yeah, we make that part of the interview process, mm. and actually, it's been really interesting watching people at interviews. When I say to people, "You're allowed to have emotions, and you're allowed to talk about your emotions," they smile and they all agree, <laughs> and then I say. <laughs> The flip side of this is I'm also allowed to have emotions. So if I'm upset, you're going to know it, and <laughs> you'll hear me say I'm very frustrated with you. And then their face gets very stoic for a moment, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh." And I said, "And you know, when I say, and if you don't want that environment, you don't have to work here, but this is your choice now." I've had people say, "Yeah, that's not an environment I think I can work in,"、mm. or "Yeah, I really like that idea." So we've got a self-selected group of people now who actually really like that as the workplace they're coming into.、Yeah. Um, part of it is making sure nobody feels pressured to have or show emotions.、Mm. You know, I,、um, and this has actually been really important with.、Um, 
some of our Asian lab members <laughs> who um, are not used to expressing emotion. Right. And they say, I feel actually better not expressing my negative emotion. I'd like to keep that to myself. Mm-hmm. And because otherwise I'm going against how I've been brought up for my whole life. And um, we, we have to say, okay, so if that's how you want to be, that's fine. Um, the one thing, again, that I make a distinction mm-hmm. between is if you disagree, I would like you to have the courage to disagree. If you feel scared about that, feel free to let me know. But, um, you know, I, I need the cognitive part of that mm. where you're challenging your um, initial reaction to shut down. We need disagreement to happen. Right. If you don't want to show emotion about that, that's that's up to you. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's where the shutting down being perfectly normal comes from, because I actually really appreciate you saying that, because uh, I see the tendency where like expression of your emotions and communicating and constantly um, letting people know, checking in, these become are becoming more uh, normative or, or desirable. Whereas if you shut down and if you, you really don't feel like expressing or you're just learning, you're on the way, you're not uh, familiar with that yet. Um, I guess we still also need to give space to, to that as well and to, to people who are shyer, who are more introvert, who are more, like you said, who who are brought up in a different culture. But yeah, I think there's a minimum uh, requirement that, well, at least you, you, you let me know, you tell me that now I feel like shutting down for a while. I think that that can, can prevent a lot of um, guessing and, you know, resentment. This is what I'm understanding. Or, Well, I, I think there's a cultural context to be had here where... For example, I went to Japan and I actually lived in Japan and learned about their reactions. And we scanned the brains of Japanese people who, when they have a negative emotion, actually their brain shuts down. This is very natural Mm. um, because you wouldn't want somebody else to have a negative emotion on your behalf. So you learn very early if you're having an emotion, you let that go so that it's not contagious. Um, And they would never even think of saying, I'm having an emotion that I'm shutting down now, because that's also in danger of, you know, telling somebody I'm having an emotion on your behalf. And you don't question that. It would be all sorts of loss of face if you said, oh, you're having an emotion, right? (laughs) Or expecting them to own up to it. Um, so, So another example is in America, white men are absolutely allowed to express Mm. anger. Black men? are really not. And you tell a black man, you, you have to tell me when you're angry. And that's going to breed all sorts of conflict because that's not how they've been brought up. Right? Okay. Um, and so having those reactions be natural and allowing you to have the reaction that you normally would have and saying as an employer, my job is to meet somebody where they are, even if they don't tell me, I have to be on the lookout for where they are and how they want to be and empower them to have those reactions, all about it. Okay, so I misunderstood you uh, a little bit because when you said you want your employee to 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 let you know that they shut down, I thought you're still encouraging that amount of expression. But now you're, I'm yeah. encouraging. Mm-hmm. I'm encouraging them to say it's okay. I'm encouraging people to know it's okay. Right. So it's okay to have an emotion. It's okay to tell me you're shutting down for a while. 
and it's okay to react in a natural way and to process that later. Mm. We're just putting the entire spectrum of emotion on the table and saying it doesn't have to be implicit. Yeah, because if you ask someone who's shutting down to still gather their energy to tell you that they're shutting down, they're not really shutting down. So, so basically, we need to allow for that, that non-reaction and, and maybe totally, total silence or total like, drop offline kind of reaction to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you see somebody tune out for a little bit, mm. rather than saying, hey, hey, come back, mm. you know, getting distressed about it, Maybe saying, I see it looks like you need to, you know, you may, or let me give you some time and I'll come back in a bit. And maybe that's okay. Mm. And maybe just making that absolutely okay could be really useful. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and maybe people will feel safer coming back. Right. Yeah. That's a very good point. Because if you give them too much pressure, and and push them to to share then or or like even express it's safe to share <laughs> actually they feel unsafe yeah so so we did an experiment recently um where we um looked at the brains of people who were um practicing orgasmic meditation mm. which is a meditation form that involves um sitting for 15 minutes with intense sexual stimulation. And one thing we know, people who have sexual abuse histories usually have a lot of problems with arousal, Mm -hmm. and especially sexual arousal. And it turns out in this meditation form where everything is completely safe, like it's non-goal directed, you experience as you want to experience and as you are okay experiencing. um, And where everything is predictable and where your reactions um, completely dictate what happens. If you say stop or slow down, that all happens. In that context, the people who um, are being stroked, it's a stroking practice, Mm -hmm. who have sexual abuse histories have no problem with arousal. And we wanted to submit a paper just called Not Broken. You know, it's not their physiology is broken as much as if you make it completely safe to have in a reaction and to pull back and to let these processes play out naturally, then actually they can lean into arousal and there's not a problem doing that. Mm. So I think it's a lack of safety that leads people to prolonged shutting down a lot of the time where they feel like if I let these emotions out, you know, that's not going to be okay for me. Mm. So, uh, so is that related to trauma and trauma healing? Um, I think it can be, Mm -hmm. you know, we have not yet shown that this is a clinically useful practice. Mm. Um, but we have shown that exposure therapy is very useful where you expose somebody to the things they're traumatized by and allow them to have an emotional reaction and provide a safe environment for that. And their trauma symptomatology often seems to subside some. Mm. That sounds a little bit tricky, though. It can, can it re-traumatize people, like by exposing to? It looks like it depends how you do it, and there's a lot of arguments about um, exposure therapy and how to do this right. Right. Um, one of the things we're finding is that 
it may help to pre-expose somebody, to show them a glimpse of what's going to happen mm -hmm. and say, here's where we're going. Now prepare yourself. And then to leave for 15 minutes and not do anything related to that. And then come back and do the exposure. And their brain has gotten the state where it knows what it's doing with the information, how it's going to react, how it's going to use that information. And something like that actually tends to perhaps work a lot better than if you just throw somebody into the tank right. with a shark. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of, uh, again, context and, and safe environment, basically set and setting going on. I think it's all set and setting. Yeah. It's interesting that set and setting is so like a common sense in the psychedelic world, but among uh, maybe mainstream psychology or psychiatry, it's not really that common, right? Or um, I think it's something that has been more implicitly acknowledged, mm. but not made explicit a lot of the time. Um, I got my first taste of that a bunch of years ago with an exercise study mm -hmm. where we all know that exercise is beneficial. Um, and so we wanted to demonstrate that exercise was beneficial for mood. So we brought people into a very stark lab room with lots of equipment and hooked them up. And somebody in a white lab coat had you just step on a step um, <laughs> device, you know, up and down and up and down for 15 minutes <laughs> and then did the motion tasks. And people's emotion was no better regulated. They didn't say they felt better. Nothing was happening. And we said, why doesn't this work? And I was presenting on these data saying maybe exercise doesn't always help. And somebody reminded me of a study of hotel workers mm. where it turns out hotel workers get lots of exercise. They're constantly turning over mattresses and things. They get none of the health benefits of exercise. It turns out if you tell hotel workers, think of your job as exercise and we're going to allow you to, you know, really lean in, push the mattresses when you turn them and think of all how good this is for you. They start getting the health benefits. Mm -hmm. Set and setting changes everything from our body's reaction to what's happening to our mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that also reminds me of uh, what uh, James Fadiman was also talking about, uh, this whole real-world evidence. So instead of having uh, working out in a lab with all the white coats, those kind of setting, you, you actually need to study people in real life and yeah, collect evidence from there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, the way psychology is moving now, is we're doing a lot more with passive monitoring as people go through their everyday lives. We know that they don't act the same in the lab. Mm. There was a study in a very early study, maybe in the 70s, where they monitored people's heart rate to lab stimuli like movies, and it went up this high. And then they kept the heart monitor on them and let them go home. And as soon as they got home, they were watching a football game and having <laughs> a fight with their spouse, and their heart rate was so much higher than anything in the lab. It's we were realizing the laboratory is not a good context for either stimulation or intervention a lot of the time. Mm, right. Yeah. And and just now when you talked about the, the cleaner in the hotels, you used the word lean in. Uh, what, what does that mean? And what does it mean to lean into an emotional state? Because, well, we, we, we often heard about this word lean in from a very professional, like people who want to, uh, like they encourage women to lean a step forward that kind of leaning in but i know uh, by lean in you mean something different right so this is 
it's a vocabulary that neuroscience has not used a lot. What I can say is we use a lot of vocabulary about regulation mm. and how does regulatory control interact with having emotional processes. And it turns out these reactions are happening all the time. And we can prepare to say, how much do I want to control a reaction? Um, perhaps leaning in is about not over controlling. Mm. We did an experiment where we brought 100 people in the lab and measured their brains while they were thinking about the best time in their life. Mm. And it turns out that the people who became happy when they did this, very little of their brain actually turned on, but all, the all of the regulatory areas shut off as they thought about these, these really good times that they've had. And they allowed themselves to experience that. Right. Um, so I think it's a lot... Uh, saying to your regulatory regions, you're allowed to stand down. Okay. Another example is um, we believe orgasm is a lot of process of letting go, mm -hmm. stopping regulation. Yeah. And we've done sexual stimulation experiments where we find that in the moments before orgasm, somebody has what looks like a very conscious decision process where they say, like, okay, I'm going to turn off some of these regulatory mechanisms now and the prefrontal areas that normally help us keep down our emotions, they shut off as we really engage very strongly in high arousal emotion. Okay. And so I think leaning in is sometimes making a conscious decision to not overregulate. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting and profound. And it, it reminds me of a Chinese word of wu wei, which also means non-doing or, yeah, just basically... Um, not like like you said, not overregulating and not letting like basically shutting down those regulatory uh, mechanisms and and let go and trust and surrender. That's that's a lot about that, right? Yeah, I I used to have a supervisor, a therapy supervisor, who would say to me, "How hard are you working?" And I'm like, "I'm I'm really working <laughs> for this patient. I'm working really hard." And he would say to me. Are you, maybe you're working too hard. What if you just didn't? What if you What if you just didn't work so hard all the time? Right. Just allowed the process to play out a little more naturally. Yeah. And that was a lot of years of work. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know when when I was in the Zen monastery, I had the exact same comment from a Zen master was, "What if you just allowed these processes to play out and mm. didn't work so hard to." sort of keep the lid on all the time. <laughs> yeah. I also remember during your lecture, you mentioned a study where actually not regulating anything, like not doing anything to your emotions, ended up having quite, like, almost similar or even better results than regulating very hard. When, when you, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, this was incredible, where they had people use the canonical strategies that we teach in therapy. Mm -hmm or not, <laughs> it turns out that not doing a lot of the things might work out just about as well. We've also done a study with depressed people where we ask them what strategies they're using. And it turns out compared to people who are not depressed, depressed people are using more regulation strategies. Whoa. They're working all the time to keep emotions in check. And maybe, maybe this isn't what they need. Um, and maybe allowing yourself to experience sometimes might be easier and take a lot less cognitive work 
and might allow you to do other things.、Mm. Wow, this is very interesting. So, But what what about、uh, rumination then? Because if you, I, I guess this is the where where the paradox comes in. Like maybe depressed people are are thinking, if I don't regulate at all, I may end up in this negative loop in myself, and I don't want to be in there. So I, yeah, they end up doing a lot. Right. So it turns out that. Rumination is very interesting. It's a lack of control in some sense.、Mm-hmm. In another sense, there's a lot of contingency to do it. When you ask people about rumination, they say, "Well, I believe that I I need to think about this stuff. I might make the same mistakes again, or if I don't prepare for next time, you know, this is really bad." And people have these beliefs that rumination is good for them.、Mm. So for these people, we encourage them to experiment, and we have an experiment in my lab now. Where we make rumination playtime, where we show people rumination statements, and we show, and sometimes、um, some, statements an like what? The, oh, the, we ask them to generate、okay. them, the things they usually ruminate about when they're very upset.、Okay. And sometimes X's come up on the screen, and they have to push a button when they see the X. And if they're very deep in rumination, they don't even see the X. Wow! Right? And so we ask them and say. We want you to not distract and look away, or you know, like something like that. And we want you not to be totally self-recriminatory and、um, go to the depths. But maybe try and surf. Maybe allow yourself to see these statements and say, "Yeah, that's bad," and ruminate a bit, but also stay present when the X comes up.、Mm. And people get good this liminal state in the lab. And when you train them on it. And train them to be able to do what they want, and to have the distance or leaning into the rumination that they want, rather than what is completely, you know, their history and completely automatic. All of a sudden, they find that they're recognizing when they're ruminating in the real world. They don't even usually recognize、mm. it, and then they say, "And I can do what I want with it." And sometimes they choose to ruminate, and sometimes they choose not to. Wow. We, we know one of the most successful interventions for anxiety. Is giving somebody a worry time and saying it's not that I want to invalidate your worries. It's just maybe we don't have to do it all the time right now. How about we give you an hour tonight, and in that hour you do all of your worries. And when you're going to worry today, write down the thing you would worry about and say, "Yeah, I'm going to do it, but I have my time tonight for that." And it turns out this works really, really well. People find it okay to go about their day because they don't have the pressure to ruminate and worry right now,、mm. and they also know they're allowed to do it tonight. And in that time, they they fully indulge and they fully lean into the worry.、Mm. So you're learning to manage your emotions as you would want to, rather than as you feel you have to. Right, and with rumination, you also、uh, don't fight against it. It's more like you recognize it and you. Then take back the agency to decide what I'm gonna do with it. Yeah, it sounds yeah. more powerful. Yeah. So if what I want to do right now is ruminate, we absolutely let you. And if what you want to do is not ruminate, we allow you to take distance. But I would like to put that power back in your hands. So many of my patients, my depressed patients, say the problem is not that they ruminate; it's that they're controlled by it. They、mm. can't do what they want to with it. So I would rather empower them. To say, yeah, let, let's give you the skill and the brain mechanisms to be able to control it when you want to, and to do what you want with with this, and not say it's bad so much as maybe it's not what I want to do right now.、Mm. Yeah, 
But back to your anxiety, like time limit thing, I'm not sure if that worked for me because I I used to be super anxious when I was doing my PhD a few uh, two years ago. But um, yeah, I I would feel <laughs> more anxious if I had I know there's a deadline <laughs> for my anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So so we actually worked with that. Really、um, explicitly, and said, "How much time do you need to worry?" Okay. And I'm not going to impose that on you. And if somebody says tonight I need five hours to worry, okay, let's put that off for tonight, and we'll block out five hours in our schedule <laughs> to worry. And what you see is that people have trouble filling five hours. Exactly. And they come to a, how much time they need. Again. Rather than having me dictate, I think right now we have a medical model a lot where, as the doctor, as the white male doctor, I tell you how much time you need to worry, <laughs> and that maybe I don't need to mansplain your emotions to you so much. Maybe let you say how much time do you need to worry, and you tell me, and you experiment with yourself, but give you the freedom to play and to experiment, and you'll come to what you need. Right? Yeah. I I think what. I found、um, difficult was not that well. If if I give myself five hours, of course I'm not gonna worry in in the full five hours. But it's more like, okay, I allowed myself to, for example, worry for an hour. And but what am I gonna do in the rest of the the day? And what if the the anxiety anxiety came back again? And and maybe I would feel more frustrated because I already allowed myself to worry, but it comes back again. So I think. Uh, the crucial thing is still how to deal with that emergence of anxieties out of blue and during your work、right. in the day, and how do you go back to the present, or, or just like you said, even just to lean in to that. So,、yeah. so this is where we've been really enjoying these experiments with playtime, with rumination in my lab,、mm-hmm. because people in a very low-stakes setting get to say, "Yeah, this is about how much." I need to lean in. What happens if I don't? And a lot of people who come in—I've been so surprised—they've actually never done the experiment of what if I just didn't ruminate right now? Would the world actually end? You know, do I need to indulge this? And I think what happens a lot of time is people—we ruminate about good things to ruminate. Like these are really important things, and our brain just says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely need to do this." And if you say, "Well," Let's take a playtime, some time that's not critical, and challenge that, and say, "Does the world end?" And the brain learns that the world doesn't end if it doesn't ruminate right now.、Mm. The next time, it doesn't need to ruminate so much,、um, and it can experiment with that. So, giving people playtime is one really important intervention, I think. Another thing is. As long as you're fighting against a rumination, you know, in the workplace, if you say I'm not allowed to have this, I'm not allowed to worry, then you're constantly going to be upset about it, and the upset's going to、mm. restart the emotion loops. If you say to somebody, "Hey, look, if what you need to do now is wor- is worry and ruminate, sure, do that explicitly. Like, make that your practice. Take ten minutes. Take however long you need." People will worry and ruminate for a bit, and get that out, and be done with it, and come back and say, "Yeah, I, I finished that,"、mm. or you know, "I've indulged that." But yeah, make, making that part of an explicit process rather than stigmatizing it, I think, could be very useful. Wow! Yeah, so it's a, a lot about to make the unconscious conscious,、uh, and 
I think either make the unconscious conscious or make the make the conscious suppression meta conscious and say, yeah, this is what I'm doing and that's what I feel like doing or no, I don't feel like doing that. Yeah, that's actually the opposite of the overwhelmed sense uh, usually happens in um, depression and anxiety. So you you actually get on top of that, or I uh, I remember some a word uh-huh. you want you would like to say it's is surfing. So instead of being overwhelmed by that giant wave, you actually go on top of it and surf it. Yeah, exactly. And what we've found is that once people get this vocabulary of surfing,、mm. they actually can play, and you can play in the land of really high emotions, and sometimes even enjoy it.、Um, I've. Never seen that more than when I've talked to some people, for example, in the BDSM community,、mm-hmm. where they say I intentionally have really high arousal negative experiences, and I like playing with those states in myself.、Mm. Um, and I think perhaps there's something to learn from that. So we did an experiment where we went to an extreme haunted house,、mm-hmm. and we measured 125 people as they went through this extreme haunted house, and we measured their brains before and after. And before they went through, they signed a consent form saying, "I'm going to have the Dickens scared out of me." <laughs> and they said, "Yeah, that's exactly the experience I want." And they screamed and they cried and they came out. And then we asked them about their emotions, and they said they felt great. And this was a whole lot of fun for them、mm-hmm. because they weren't suppressing the negative affect. They weren't suppressing fear. They were actually leaning into it, and they felt better afterward.、Mm. Um, And we looked at their brain, and their brain wasn't doing a lot of regulation afterward. And you could startle them, and they had very little of the reactivity that would say they're trying to suppress that. Wow. Huh. So, so what do you think is the difference between、uh, haunted house or BDSM play parties、uh, compared to our day-to-day life? Why is this so hard for for people to lean in and to surrender in in our normal waking consciousness? Well. I think there's some differences. You know, the workplace is rarely accepting of having an actual emotion reaction. Even if we say, "I want to allow you to have emotions," does that mean you're allowed to really cry and scream at work? Maybe not, and maybe it should be allowed. I know one workplace that has a place where you can go to cry, and、mm. it's explicit like that. Yeah.、Um, I think also people tend to confound having an emotion with being mean. Mm-hmm. And you know, saying this gives me the right to really lay into somebody else, and that could be contagious in a very difficult way. Yeah. And learning to have an emotion but not take it out on someone else—that's actually not skills that we give people very much. No. We give people here's how to not have an emotion, but not here's how to really own your sadness and not turn that into anger.、Mm. Um. We could be teaching that in something like a BDSM context. People have told me, "Oh yeah, you're you're absolutely allowed to be sad, and you could get angry, but you know that there's rules for how you're allowed to play that out." So、mm. maybe you know, learning from that in the haunted house context, we had explicit rules in the haunted house. You're allowed to scream and be very upset, but you're not allowed to hit the actors.、Mm. You know. And people seemed very okay with those rules.、Mm. Yeah.、Mm. Now, I, now I realize there's also not 
that not just the individual level of emotional re- regulation. It's more like you said earlier about the the power relations in in workplace or in other day to day life situations. Because,、um, for example, if I were a, a well, I'm a woman, and、uh, if I'm not white, and I I I work at the like I'm an intern and. Yeah, so all those things make me more、um, afraid of losing what I've, I'm already having, and yeah, yeah. So, so that let me just pick、yeah. up that one second、mm-hmm. because it's so important.、Mm-hmm. I mean, they've done the studies, and white white men are allowed to have emotions, and actually, it turns out women are dismissed if they have a reaction that's more emotional. So, societally, they're encouraged to not show those emotions.、Mm. And so maybe that's a change in society we need, where, you know, it's not just that, as you said, a BDSM play party that somebody could show emotions, but maybe making it okay for a woman to have emotions in the workplace and not be dismissed to say I'm emotional, and yet you should still listen to me. <laughs> it doesn't mean you shouldn't be listened to. Yeah, because if women show their、um, emotions, they, they may be deemed as. Historical, and and then maybe your your arguments are not valid anymore, and and you're not rational,、mm-hmm. and yeah, and especially women、uh, with anger, like men maybe are are more encouraged to show their anger, and and well, that was deemed more like you showing your leadership or something. But women, if being angry, they immediately are seemed as not being rational, and and on the other hand, men. Uh, are not encouraged to show their sadness, or so so, and and maybe every everyone had、uh, a negative、um, understanding of aggression or of yeah a lot of so called negative emotions. That's why I I I guess it feels really restrained、uh, in many contexts. Yeah. Can you imagine if workplace training started with? Somebody says something, and no matter what the emotion they're having, I want you to actually listen for the content, <laughs> and to start with, I hear you. I hear what you're actually saying. Here's what I think you're saying. I mean, the level of diffusion of emotion that that would bring, and allowance for you're having an emotion, and yet I'm actually getting content. Wow. I. I think that requires、so、a lot on both sides or on everyone. It. I think it does require a lot. Initially, we're not practiced at it. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. Because that, again, that's why the, this kind of awareness and education is needed, and、uh, it's like a protocol. Everyone, if if everyone knows about it and and practices on it, and yeah, gradually it may may become less difficult. It it it's pretty much the same with、uh, in in relationships. I think. Yeah, while while you're shouting, while you're being emotional, can you still hear what what the other person is saying, and the content, and、mm-hmm. and more more importantly, maybe the subtext, and that's super hard <laughs> from my own experience. Well, and giving that as emotions or information in couples therapy can be very useful,、mm. and yet in couples therapy, how often do we say? And maybe shutting down is also a natural part of emotion. So maybe this person can't communicate explicitly with words right now, and maybe that has to be okay. How often do we say, 
allow them the time to not communicate rather than pushing and saying you must express more. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pressure from a lot of couple therapies or uh, or those self help mm-hmm. books uh, to encourage communication. Because and and now I realize not communicating is actually part of communication. And allowing and, space, for yeah, that and saying we could come back to this later. Maybe we don't have to do this right now. Exactly. Or maybe what I hear from you, you know, I I see that you're backing off from this. Maybe this environment doesn't feel safe. If somebody starts to shut down, asking the question, what could we do to make this safer right now? Can you imagine if that was their response to shutting down? Was hey, let's make this safe for a little while. Wow, yeah. So so far, we've been、uh, mostly talking about talking on the cognitive level. So, like to let people know shutting down is okay, and to experience that, and and understanding、um, rumination and all, all the reactions. So, what about the the body? What about、um, all the emotions stored in the body and expressed through bodily reaction? Oh, oh well, of course, shutting down can is obviously also very bodily.、Um, sure. So, saying that having an emotion is something that's restricted to ju- just this much of you,、mm-hmm. we all kind of know we probably tense up when we have emotions. <laughs> yeah, and,、um, our heart beats differently, and、yeah. maybe that's all integral to having emotions.、Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that probably, or we can measure the physiology of emotions, and emotions have huge autonomic components. That maybe also we don't want to deny. So you know, have an emotion and you start breathing differently, and maybe that's okay.、Mm. It turns out that we perceive our emotions a lot from what our body's doing. So Damasio has written these books on what he calls somatic markers.、Mm. We know we're anxious because the hair on our neck is standing up, and because we're breathing in a shallow way, and so that's giving us the reminder.、Mm. And it turns out that. Areas of the brain that compute emotions and understand how emotional we are, emotional we are, have integral connectivity with areas that perceive our body. So, if we had an emotion in some specific body state, that area of the body gets touched, or we move into a position that we had that emotion state, and our emotion recollection mechanisms come online, and we might find ourselves right back there. And if it's a really powerful emotion we had in that body state, we could be transported there, and all of a sudden you're barely in the room. And these are expectable, understandable processes. And do we want to say no, no, no? You have to come right back to the room, or maybe that's okay. And maybe if it's a safe time and place, you could indulge that instead of saying that's pathology.、Mm. And realize that it's going to be a feedback loop. And if you indulge that emotion in that body state, you may experience the emotion more strongly. Would that may make you feel it in the body more, and that could actually、um, overtake you a bit. And maybe that's okay to experiment with, especially in safe contexts. We don't do a lot in safe contexts of saying, "So, what's the body state? That you, how how are you? Where are you feeling it?"、Mm. In therapy, my favorite question now when somebody says. And having an emotion, as I say, where, <laughs> where are you feeling it in your body?、Mm. My patients from Latin American countries know exactly what I'm asking. 
Yeah. And they won't even tell me they're having an emotion. They'll tell me they're having neck pain. Wow. And we treat their neck pain. <laughs> yeah, you know? I also heard that um, <coughs> Latin American women also even are aware which one of her two ovaries, um, which one is is ovulating and which one is irritated. Yeah. So I was like, wow, it's so, so much body awareness. So, and if you're more aware of your body, this can be double edged. This could be a great thing. When you're doing yoga, and you might find yourself in some emotional recollection in a very strong way later, again because you're so in touch with your body and it's giving you these cues. Oh my god! Exactly, that speaks a lot to me. Like I, I, I also see it as a double-edged weapon or a mixed blessing because recently I'm more and more in touch with my body. So that, like I said yesterday, when I when I was thinking about some sad things, my stomach really hurts. And I nowadays I can differentiate what kind of pain is. It's like emotional pain in my stomach. What kind of pain is is that I I ate something bad.、Um, but so so that sensitivity gives me a lot of signals、uh, about. They they say a lot about my emotions, and and then I can act accordingly, and I can I can go. Practice some self care, but on the other hand, sometimes I was like, "Ah,、oh, it's so annoying. My body now becomes so sensitive, or becomes so, so in a way in tune,、um, so that I can no longer ignore it anymore." Because I was I was in, in ignorance for for twenty five or more years, and I I wasn't in touch with my body at all, and that was that seemed to be somehow easier. Yeah. Yeah. Our society's relationship with pain is basically pain is bad, and if you're feeling it, do something about it to make it go away.、Mm-hmm. You know, if you, you know, and so we have all sorts of analgesics that become: if your stomach is hurting, you take this; if your head is hurting, you take that.、Um, whereas emotion researchers are getting that emotion is information, and maybe your body has something to tell you.、Mm-hmm. So if you have that stomach pain, maybe it's telling you something, and if you don't listen, maybe it'll shout a little bit louder、yeah. until you do. Yeah. Um, and maybe if we started with, so what's it trying to tell me? What is the message here that my stomach is giving me? And I'll allow myself to hear that. Yeah. Maybe what I need to do is sit down and relax for a bit, or soothe myself.、Mm-hmm. Sure. Or maybe I don't want to be soothed right now, and maybe this, maybe this agitation I'm feeling says that really my agitation is right here and justified, and I should lean into that and allow myself to have. Some of that, and I've got actual fire in my belly, and I should go and I should go do something and use that, but not say my first job with the pain is to make it go away. Right. Yeah, that reminds me of a recent、uh, time when when I felt really again I was triggered and I felt really sad and、uh, angry and and don't know what to do in my stomach, and then I think I I called you and you were like, so so does that. Pain have necessarily have any meaning or have any、um, story attached to it, and I realized it's it's not. Maybe if I only focus on that sensation, it's only sensations. And then I remember you encouraged me to to play with that or to just to notice how much intensity, how 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 much arousal there there was in my stomach.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and honestly, I don't remember what happened afterwards, but. I felt better and <laughs> I went back to work. Well, right. But could you explain a little so, bit more、uh, the mechanism of that? Like, why would you?、Uh, why did you ask me to de- 
kind of detached the the the, the physical sensation from my my stories, and then how how did you uh, move from there? So we start with so what's the information, and we and the information is often a very short story, mm. and we validate that and allow that, and say okay, so what's the rest of this? The rest of this is just arousal, and arousal is arousal, and you get to play with that. And rather than saying high arousal is bad, make it go away. How can we use the arousal? Your body's given you this gift of arousal, and we spend our lives in pursuit of that hang gliding and, you know, jumping out of planes and um, going to haunted houses. <laughs> and arousal is something we pursue. So if we have this gift right now of arousal, why make it go away? Why not use that? So if we can say, yeah, what I experience is highly aroused. So, but 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 so I'm just maybe just want to、that. interrupt. So, being being aroused yeah, is、please. not like what we、uh, usually say sexual arousal, but、uh, arousal in in a broader term, right? Or like like what yes, I said, yes, my, my, the upset in my stomach is also kind of arousal. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm saying if you have general arousal, if you feel agitated,、mm. and the upset stomach is part of that. Okay. And so we say for you, what what does that actually mean? What are the contexts in which you Have that. Often we ascribe a story, one story, to our arousal because that's where our head is right、mm. now, and maybe it's a different story we could be giving ourselves,、mm. um, and maybe one is not more valid than the other. So often I'll ask somebody,、mm. so the place you're going with that, you you have you have agitation, and the place you're going with that is to say I must be scared,、mm. and I. And that's one story we could tell. Are there other stories? It turns out if you give people glucocorticoids, which make their heart beat very fast and make them sweat a bit, half the people say I'm very scared, and the other half the people say I'm so pumped. I'm going to go out and do something.、Mm. And that's just interpretations of the same physiology in different ways. Yeah. And once we get the actual meaning from our emotions. We get to play with what's left over in the body, and that's ours. And maybe we don't have to shut it down. Shutting down is hard. Right. Yeah. I guess it's extremely hard when you're in the middle of some scenario or some instant stories that triggered that emotion, and then you 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 attach them so tightly. Like I'm upset because of that. But what you are doing is now.、Um, Separate them and seeing. Okay, now I have something in my stomach, and that may have been caused by that. But if I attach another story to it, which might not be the case in the current moment, but I can still there is still a possibility there、um, somewhere in the past or, or 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 a likelihood somewhere, and then yeah, that that to me the the value is it brings me a. Very different perspective. Let let me try、um, really explicitly. Okay. The time course of arousal is very very slow. If I shock a rat's foot, it has amygdala activity and norepinephrine release that's associated with arousal for hours and hours、mm. thereafter.、Mm. The foot shock is a bit of information. It got what it needed to out of that. That was good information, and yet it's still going to be agitated for the next four hours. As a rat, we may not have the ability to decide what to do with that. As a human, suppose I empower you and say, "I'm not going to take away that arousal, but you get to use it 
and do what you want with it now that you've extracted the meaning. Mm. And so, okay, we have that. And <laughs> where do I want to go with it? Where, what would be fun for me right now with that arousal? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll use it to write a book. Maybe I'll sexualize it. Maybe I'll, you know, do anything with it that I decide and empower you to have that arousal and use it rather than just try and make it go away as quickly as possible. Yeah. Okay. So next time I got irritated, I will tell myself that I will have four hours of creative energy stored in my body. <laughs> Now I'm going to redirect it and use it in another way. Yeah. Exactly. You could go to the gym <laughs> um, or whatever you want to do with that. Mm. Yeah. It, you know, society has sort of acknowledged this at times. People talk a lot about makeup sex, you know, that being very powerful <laughs> when you're like all angry and you and you sexualize that energy. And maybe there's something to this. I've never seen the study of makeup sex <laughs> and the physiology of it, but I would love to do that one. Right. Um, in depression, we think that the only way we're allowed to use our sadness is to really um, isolate. Mm. Though if you talk to artists, and I have an artist in residence program in my lab, and I talk to a lot of artists about being depressed and sad, they won't take antidepressants, a lot of them, because they're afraid it will disrupt their creativity. Because they know that that's the times they can really dig into some of the things that otherwise they wouldn't have access to some of the high emotion states. Yeah. With that, I have some concerns, though. It's It seems like it's mm -hmm. reinforcing because I, I, I do some creative work as well. And I notice that if I always think, oh, I need to go to that very sad place or that very angry place, too, only that then can I um, express creatively. Then would, would wouldn't that be a little bit unhealthy, <laughs> quote unquote, for, for artists? Do we need to so, care for the artists as well? So perhaps, and I think the place I'm going with this is this is all new territory, mm. saying we're allowed to have emotions and we're allowed to understand how to use them is work that I would like to see done. Mm. And I would like to see more research on not just trying to decrease emotions. So giving people the opportunity and the ability to say, I'm going to turn on an emotional state and use it, and I'm going to turn it off when I want to, and let them be flexible, or having an artist be able to say, the thing that I'm getting benefit out of right now is the arousal. Maybe I don't need the sadness or the anger with that. Maybe I just need the general mm -hmm. arousal to be able to turn that up. We have a series of studies we've been doing lately with um, vibration. Mm. And it turns out that if you put something that vibrates on somebody's chest, um, different frequencies can, ind can independently manipulate valence that is as good or bad and perceived arousal. And you can raise arousal by just doing this on somebody's chest without necessarily making it very positive or negative. Hmm. And you can have people sit with that state and learn to use that and say, well, you could go very negative or positive as you please. And that's not something people are very accomplished with often. And they think I'm crazy until I say to try it. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think this is where my research is going. And I think could benefit a lot of people. Right. Actually, that sounds a lot uh, like Vipassana or other 
kind of meditation techniques where you don't um, attach any negative or positive meanings to to a sensation; you just observe it. Uh, do you also uh, do research in terms of that, or, or like do you have any experience? Yeah, yeah. So both. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have meditated for a long time, and we've done some research, and we now have a big retreat study starting where we're um, actually measuring people's brains during um, a week-long retreat as they learn to meditate. Wow. I think there's a lot to it. Um, I think there's possibly a difference between what novice meditators are taught with decentering and distancing from emotion mm. and what advanced meditators are taught in even the same traditions, which is how to lean into an emotion and how to really fully experience that emotion and be present in the moment with it. Um, and surfing. Philippe Golden. <laughs> Surf it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Philippe Golden talks about this wow. a lot, where, you know, you get the laughing Buddha, you know, and the notion that you fully immerse completely in an emotional event. Um, and Philippe teaches a laughter meditation, where you where you, for the next five minutes, you laugh wholeheartedly. And you're gonna find if you try and do this, you'll become self-conscious and you'll step back from it. And he's like, no, no, you have to keep engaging with it in front of other people, allowing yourself just to laugh. And it's the hardest thing. And yet, if you do this, um, perhaps you learn to sit in the moment with these really intense emotions and work with them and see what they have to offer for you. Mm. Yeah, that sounds to me like a more engaging approach, or it's it's both engaging and surrendering approach to what is alive in you. And yeah, that that also relates to the popular notion of spiritual bypassing uh, that that the spiritual community is aware of. Like you, 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 you can't meditate your your pain away from the roots. Like if you are talking about some trauma or some some the, the shadow work, you you cannot simply just sit there and detach and and wish all the untreated trauma go away. I'm inclined to agree with that, and I would say meditation and those observing techniques is very helpful um, in in the short term and especially when when the emotions are very overwhelming. But at the same time, I think it's necessary to, well, if you have time, to go into the the dark places and and maybe to look at a deeper cause of that problem. And what would you say? Yeah. So so again, I'm going to take a lot of this from what Philippe Golden says okay. because I think he's really eloquent. He was a, he was a monk in Tibet for many years before he became a neuroimager and started looking at this in the brain. Mm. And he says that. You know, there's stages to what you're taught about meditation and early training really is about distancing and you get that skill to be able to surf and dive as you like to. And once you have that, then you're taught in more advanced practices how to fully dive in and how to fully be present in the emotion. Mm. And he says that's all part of the same mindfulness traditions in Tibet, at least. Um, So thinking that meditation is just distancing, he says, is because we haven't gone far enough in that practice. Mm. Um, wow, that answers a lot for, of my questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah continue, yeah. please. Yeah. And I mean, if you consider yoga 
a lot of yoga is about really allowing yourself to have these very intense experiences, mm-hmm. right? Um, physically and really pushing yeah. yourself and challenge yourself. And you shouldn't shy away from the challenge. So, so I think that this is something that thousands of year old traditions have understood. And the way we've westernized them um, makes us think, for example, that the whole goal is to not have our emotions. And, and perhaps that's not where we're going. Mm. Yeah. So basically, it's like you need to first learn to swim and surf and then to dive so that once you come out, you can still you're still able to swim back to shore. Something like that. Yeah. 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 I think that's exactly it. Making it safe because we're going to be playing in the most extraordinary lands of the mind. Mm. And if it's not safe, that that could leave us very traumatized. Mm. So give, give you the skills first. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and to me, there's there seems to always be a, a choice to make or a constant tension between whether at this moment I want to surf a little bit or I actually want to dive in and and dig into the the emotional shadows or darkness and then to mm-hmm. to to connect with my maybe my traumatic experiences. So. Yeah. So, so how how do you choose, or is there any? What does neuroscience say about that? So, near as I can tell, and again, this is really frontiers of neuroscience. Perhaps these are all complex or constant processes that are working for us, and it's just how explicit is it? Your amygdala is not going to necessarily shut off. It's going to be interacting with other brain areas, and your insula that attends to your body may not shut off. It's going to be interacting. How do you want to use that? And maybe you want to lean in a little bit more and say, what does my emotion system have to tell me right now? And how much do I want to attend to that versus how much do I want to attend to other things? And if we make that continuous, well, maybe, maybe we can allow our dark side to be part of us every day. And maybe we don't have to say, this time I'm allowing the dark. And this time I'm just, you know, being... Jess at work, and this time I'm being, you know, Jess in a happy way. Maybe that, maybe that's all one person, mm. and acknowledging that these processes that are there and simmering all the time, and we can call on them and use them as strength, and use them as superpowers, could be really interesting. So if what I need right now is to be able to um, have a skeptical look at a situation, maybe I can tap into my dark. And if what I need right now is to be able to say, I'll worry about this later, maybe I'll tap into my more cognitive a bit. Um, mm. And maybe not one of these is not bad or good as much as if I have the ability to understand how I'm using this great resource that is my brain, I can use all of it or some of it as I want to. Mm. And realizing there are these natural processes that take over. So if I, if for example, I step on a nail my arousal is going to go up and then not fighting it, but say, okay, so the dark's going to be there for a bit. Let's use that. Let's have that piece be part of it. And so maybe I can be a bit more snarky for the next hour or two. And maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've realized how not to take that out on people and get, and, you know, make them feel bad for it, maybe there can be a lot of joy that comes in, in having that come to visit for a little while. Mm-hmm. So, I would call this a middle way. 
and the middle way is to have the emotion and the cognitive systems or brain salience and regulatory systems all integrated and realizing they're integrated. Um, having it be okay in the workplace, having it be okay when you're alone and not fighting it so much as acknowledging it and working with it rather than against it. Hmm. I don't know. It, there's, it, this is a lot of information for me right now. And I have the sense that it sounds like a privilege or a luxury for someone who's maybe who has still have very painful trauma to, to deal with. And this middle way sounds not attentive enough to the real, like the, the, the pain that was not addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or are so, you, were you saying that when you use the word simmer, did you mean that when regulate your emotions cognitively, the healing is also happening, uh, like simmering? Is that what you mean? So the way I would think about it is if we stigmatize the shutting down you do and the having a trauma recollection, that could be very negative. Mm. To me, if we say these reactions are perfectly normal and some loud noise happens, you're going to dive under a desk and maybe that's got to be okay. And we start by giving you permission to have these reactions. Mm. Um, that is healing because you're not spending all your time at home alone, avoiding the world, right? Okay. Because you're afraid of having these reactions yeah. in public. So, so saying, I'm going to have these things happen. And how do I want to do with it and deal with it and give you skills for experiencing these things in an adaptive way and using them and co-opting them um, mm. seems more interesting to me than just shutting it off. Right. People who, dis- people who have trauma backgrounds often learn very early on to dissociate mm-hmm. and saying, I'm taking that away from you and you're not allowed to use that. Hmm. Like that's it's like invalidating the thing you've learned your whole life. How about saying you're absolutely allowed to use that, and if you want to play a bit with the edges of that, I'm right here to play with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I remember you also said instead of imagining yourself as a fly on the wall, how about imagine yourself as a fly in your toe, so that you're both dissociating and you're still embodied. <laughs> Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. exactly. Yeah. And starting to allow that, it's a different vocabulary and it's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually feel very touched when you said about that because what I was, um, what I said or what I was worried is more like from an individual um, trauma patient point of view. But what you were constantly emphasizing was actually the change of the world or the change of the community, the change of the outside world of those trauma or depressed patients. And, and then it's no longer the work of the so-called patients themselves. And it's no longer just the regulating of, of, of one individual's emotions, but also really the change of the perception of those emotional states in a wider range of people or yeah even even um professionals and researchers that's exactly where i'm going yeah Yeah. so the israeli army has a unit where they employ people with autism and Mm. the reason they do is because they want people to find um weapons areas and bunkers in pictures and these pictures are like a forest where there's just some little detail that's a little bit off and computers are bad at finding it 
but autistic people can find it very easily because they see patterns <laughs> and they see violations of the pattern very easily. Right. And so what they've found is if they're going to do this, they really need to um, attend very carefully to the needs of the people with autism and to make the environments, for example, fairly low stimulus and to give them space if they have a strong emotional reaction. And so they change the environment to allow people to function optimally with the superpowers that they have. Mm. And I think that this is where I would like to see us go is to say we everyone is bringing strengths to situations and then those strengths often come with some vulnerabilities and allowing both the strengths and the vulnerabilities to play out is something I think a lot of us want to work to. We don't know how and perhaps we could get there. Mm, experiment about it. And yeah, so so what about depression? So how what kind of environment is is thriving for for those are depressed. Well, I think the first part is not stigmatizing mm -hmm. it, um, and saying if somebody is feeling like they can't work today, you know, allowing that and not having to make up an excuse. Mm. Um, also, saying allowing somebody to say today I'm going to come to work and be really sad, and maybe you don't have to. Um, not talk to me because of that, but say, yeah, you're really sad and yet you have something to contribute. So you don't feel like you have to stay away when you're sad. Mm -hmm. um, having both of those exist. Having it be there. There's a very successful therapy called interpersonal therapy that says if people are able to use their social network, they end up getting less depressed. Mm -hmm. So making it so that you're not encouraged necessarily to isolate, but actually to interact and having the social network be trained for how to interact could be useful. There's there's a lot of places to go with this. Um, if somebody's usually optimistic, understanding that their information processing changes, so they'll see the bad things about stuff when they're depressed more easily, and how to use that <laughs> to in a successful way. Um, we don't teach people that that's a skill, but it is a skill that depressed people have. <laughs> and they can see vulnerabilities in systems and ways things are likely to fail better than anybody else. Yeah, and it's actually really useful. Constructive pes so, pessimism. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's called depressive realism. Yeah. But to me, it's still, again, it always goes back to the whole social, social political structure of, of, of the workplace and the whole mm -hmm. fetishizing of, of productivity. And I think that's the most, actually, that's the most depressing, uh, situation we're mm -hmm. in. And that's also what causes a lot of people depressed. And, and the more we emphasize on productivity and on outcome, on, on the constant gain, um, yeah, I think, I think yeah. even with limited allowance of of feeling bad, I think people are still going to be stressed and and feeling bad about the depressed state and and have a lot of stigma so, around it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is absolutely true. And learning to not feel bad about your depression so that it propagates could be really useful. And having that be absolutely allowed. One of the things we do in the experiments in my lab is say, if somebody is feeling really bad, how can we use it? What are they seeing that the rest of us aren't? So 
a lot of times I have a student who might get very demotivated mm -hmm. and they start beating themselves up about not being productive when they're so demotivated. And if we start with maybe that's information, what are you demotivated about? What's going on? Letting them say, oh, yeah, I just feel like this line of research isn't progressing. Well, why not? And as soon as we empower them to say, well, why not? What's going on? Often they're like, well, there are things we don't know that we would need to know. Okay, do a left turn and learn that. And they've now used their negative affect and their depression changes because they were empowered. So I think there are these interactions, and it's not always that the depression is just illness as much as sometimes it's information. Sometimes that then the affect continues, and you could perform through that or take some time and experience reward for a while. And we also know that that works for depression, just putting somebody in a really high reward environment mm -hmm. sometimes helps, or having them engage more with reward and saying, this person needs to leave early a couple days a week to do something really rewarding and go horseback riding, you know, you know, in the middle of the day and maybe make that OK as part of their existence when they're depressed is we have to fill this person's life with a little more reward. As you say, not fetishizing productivity, but fetishizing having people be where they want to be and how they want to be. Mm. That to me sounds like require a lot of radical changes both in personal life and in society. And I agree. Yeah. And that, I'm willing to go on any podcast that will have me on and talk about this <laughs> so that we can start to make this happen. True. I'm actually less optimistic. It sounds like there's some structural change to me make. And like, yeah, we can, we can link that to capitalism or, or, or like even, yeah, some, some larger perspectives I, I don't know um do do you think that's necessary to always consider like we are in this matrix and a lot mm -hmm. of our uh, so-called symptoms are actually uh, a public issue and a, a political issue right so i believe as you say there is this larger socio-political context at the same time i also believe this is one where local changes can have profound meaning Mm. So when people visit my lab and see the experiments in my lab, other people say, hey, maybe that's how I want mm. to be. Any workplace can implement more tolerance for emotion, and that can be a local thing. True. Um, any person can decide to empower themselves a little bit. And instead of saying, I feel, you know, I, I have a headache to say, hey, I don't want to get everybody else sad. I'm going to stay back today mm. and see how that works out. And, you know, have those hard conversations. It's going to take people having some hard conversations and reclaiming personal power. But I, I think it's worth doing that on a local level. The people who I've seen do that and try have been having very good results. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I think what we're coming to and what we've talked a lot about is learning to not beat yourself up mm. about having emotions or having the lack of emotion and say, if I have an emotion, it's information. It's something to play with. It's something to indulge as I feel like. And reclaiming personal power over emotions rather than what society tells us to right. have about emotions could be useful. Mm -hmm. I look forward to continuing to do research on this. And I would just encourage people to 
do be their own scientist and play with their emotions rather than be scared of them. Wow, yeah, I really like that. I, I like how you concluded this episode. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Jess. I've enjoyed the opportunity. Same, same. <laughs>